okay, let's start and uh, you will get what you wanted, but I warn you, it will be more boring, systematic, repetitive and so on. And I tried to be honest, so although I promised to the poet to come yesterday evening, I didn't come, but sincerely, because uh, I struggled with this, how to, how to start with Hegel, and uh, it's, it's a problem. So please, maybe we'll be a little bit bored. All I can say is that I will try to proceed slowly, systematically, not any kind of general introduction, just to give you an idea of some fundamental Hegelian moves, because the first thing to do, of course, is if your knowledge of Hegel is the general one that you get from textbooks, you know, German idealist, absolute idealism, he believed in a kind of a pan-logical view that you can, out of the self-movement of a notion, you can somehow develop, deduce uh, the, the entire reality in the sense of absolute knowing, the end of the story, all that stuff. Forget about this. Or if you have an idea that somehow the basic, as it were, matrix of the Hegelian movement, of the self-deployment of Hegelian dialectic is this infamous triad, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Forget about it. Incidentally, I hope you know that the ABC Hegel even never used, never used the terms. It's quite breathtaking how people don't take into account this. Hegel never used the term. It's, I think, I'm not sure that it's Karl Rosenkrantz, one of the pupils of Hegel who putatively once Use, uses these terms. So it's quite breathtaking when you take this extremely anti-Hegelian histories of philosophy like the popular one by Bertrand Russell, where he automatically assumed thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you find nowhere this, simply nowhere this in Hegel. Also, the idea that Hegel somehow thought that, 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 that history is over with him, that he comes at the end. It's how should I put it naively? It's empirically not true. For example, if you read closely his philosophy of nature, again and again he emphasizes it is too early to say we don't know yet enough about that and so on. Even in the domain of history, for example, it's very interesting to read the most racist Hegel, although I claim it's much more ambiguous, the introduction to his philosophy of history, where he deals with uh, so-called geographic geographic presuppositions of history. Okay, here you have Hegel, I admit it, at his worst Eurocentric, because he deals with black Africans only here, as not history proper, but geographic presuppositions of history. That's another story. But uh, nonetheless, what is interesting here is that, for example, when he, and remind you, this was written in 1810s, when he deals with, mentions briefly, Russia, Russian Empire, and United State, States. He says it's too early today, next 20th century will be the century of these two countries. We cannot develop theory now. So, at least empirically, he wasn't an idiot. <laughs> no. When he made predictions, they were usually good predictions. No? That, uh, incidentally, although Marxists are, Marxists are usually dismissed as a kind of, you know, fanatical dogmatics. Sometimes they were 
incredibly, okay, I wouldn't say intelligent, maybe just lucky. For example, as far as I know, I read this in an article of a, how do you call it, futurologue, guys who deal with future in a scientific way, more or less, if you can. He confesses that the only guy who already in the 19th century clearly predicted World War II, not one, was Engels, Friedrich Engels. In a letter in already in, I think, late 1870s or early 1880s, when it became clear this tension because of German role, wanted more colonies and so on, and then he said, not only will probably there be somewhere in the beginning of next century a big European war, but probably Germany will find itself going between two Poles, Anglo-Saxon, French and Russian, it will lose the war and then a decade or two later it will start a new war. No, that's not so bad. No. <laughs> okay, but let's go on. Uh, please have patience today. You can complain afterwards and we can move back to obscene stories about cinemas and what other obscenities I like to talk about, structure of toilets or whatever, no? Okay. Uh, uh, incidentally, I can be, just to start with an amusement, I don't know if you know the story, I can really be vulgar here. Once, even my Swiss guests didn't know here, because once I debated here with some Swiss guys about, I warn you, this is politically incorrect, you can probably, no, but you cannot, I will, okay. Uh, uh, like, you know, in Europe, we have each nation, not every, but most of them, are identified with a certain sexual practice. So, to be vulgar, if you say to your girlfriend, let's do it the Spanish way, it means penis between the breasts. If you say, let's do it, you didn't know this. And you are Spanish, or what? Betraying <laughs> <laughs> patriotism. And at least... It's what we call the French way. <laughs> ah, really? Ah, but it's always, these paradoxes are... I know, this is always like this. That's darkness, because for example, it's wonderful paradox that in, in, my, uh, in my country and in Balkan, we called this mixed mix vegetable salad, salad, French salad. In France, they call it salad macedoine. You know, all the, or, for example, what always intrigued me is, you know, the whipped cream. In France, they call it Chantilly. Chantilly is a city there, you know. Okay, my point, you know, is this Bertrand Russell problem. Does the barber uh, shave? How do they call it in Chantilly itself? You know? <laughs> so, okay, my point is that, okay, so that's how, then, I don't know, now you can again protest, but at least in my country and in Germany, I know. If you say to a girlfriend, let's do it Italian way, it means anal penetration. Now, again, am I wrong? In our country, that means Greek. Greek. Exactly. Greek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have other prejudices. Sorry for you about Greek. <laughs> For us, the main idea is that Greek guys are mostly gay. Okay, but that's typical Slavic anti-Greek prejudice. This is all, all dirty. What's no? the Slovenian way? Sorry? What's the Slovenian way? 
impotent. You do it You do it half in a sleep and then basically you just touch the girl in half dream and then after she awakens in the morning you tried to convince her that something happened. <laughs> Counting on the fact that her memory is not good and so on. <laughs> Uh, uh, no, but what I'm saying is that then, of course, uh, uh, I was talking with, uh, here in Switzerland, sorry, in Zurich, with some Swiss students and professors, we entered the topic of what would be the Swiss way. Okay, the first idea was the cynical one. If you are a man, of course, you don't even need a body, a woman, you just masturbate with money or whatever. No, no but then I came a very creative idea, no? Which was that, uh, what about, uh, you know what is Swiss army knife? Yes. This, you know, ten of them. Well, can you imagine Swiss army wife, you know, like, you know, <laughs> masturbating with one with all the legs. <laughs> Maybe this would be the, the Swiss guy, you know. And, uh, this is, for me, you see, real tolerant multiculturalism, where you're real open to, to the other country. Okay, but... Okay, we have to do it. Uh, let's start. Uh, first, Hegel and history. You know what is the standard problem with Hegel? Probably you know this about Hegel, and this is even usually... I, I warn you, I will consciously move at a very elementary level. Uh, if you... Hegel is usually perceived as the one who asserted a kind of a universal historicist dialectical movement, nothing is stable, everything is moving, changing, there is movement not only in the domain of empirical reality, but also in the domain of ideas, ideas develop, you start with being, you go to nothing, becoming, whatever. This kind of an idea of, let's call it universal mobilism. And then... Some wise guys like to say one of the most stupid things for me in the history of thought is that, but there is a contradiction in Hegel. How could he, I mean, it's not only Friedrich Engels, it's already some young Hegelians who started this stupidity, saying, but isn't there a contradiction in Hegel? On the one hand, dialectic, everything moves, genesis, you know, to understand the thing means to understand its uh, role, place in a global development. Uh, so, uh, to Hegel, it's usually imputed totally wrongly, this uh, developmental evolutionary view that to understand a phenomenon is to understand its genesis. To understand what something is, is to understand how this thing came to be. I mean, of course, it's totally the opposite. Marx is a true Hegelian. When he says a statement which may appear teleological, but it's deeply non-teleological. You know, this quite surprising statement in that methodological introduction to Grundrisse manuscripts, when Marx says, uh, the anatomy of a man is a key to the anatomy of the ape. That is to say, you have first to, when you are uh, observing or trying to understand the development of a certain form, you first have to know the end result, so that then retroactively backwards you can recognize 
trace the elements which led to it. Now you will say, this is clear teleology. We begin at the end and then only backwards we can analyze it. No, it's the exact contrary. Marx's point is that precisely because history is contingent, because new always emerges, emerges, sorry, ex nihilo, no matter how you look into the ape, if you accept, okay, we can play this ultra-deep ecological view, why should men be more developed than ape? But we, if we somehow accept this, no matter how you analyze apes, you will not find there some elementary seeds, so that, you know, there is no progress. There are radically contingent cuts. So, this, so again, Hegel is definitely not a historicist, and this idea of some contradiction, as they usually put it, between dialectical, that's, it's usually put it in classical Marxism, as those who criticize Hegel in this way, as the contradiction between dialectical method and Hegelian system, like method good, you analyze everything in its dynamics, system bad. Hegel, who, who, that idiot who thought with his Prussian monarchy history was an, at an end, he didn't, and so on. So, uh, we have to reject this, but how? Easy to say, difficult to do, of course. First, uh, Hegel, in a way, was a historicist, but uh, the main feature of the authentic historical thought proper is not what we may call mobilism, this motive of fluidification or historical re relativization of all forms of life. The idea that, you know, everything is historically conditioned and so, and so on and so on, which is why incidentally I also, for reasons which will become clear later today, I hope totally oppose this uh, uh, so-called postmodern discursive historicism in the sense of, you know, in the sense precisely of anti-essentialism, in the sense of all forms of life are, are, uh, are uh, emerged contingently, symbolic constructs, and so on and so on. I will try to develop later why I disagree with this. But again, so it's not this general idea of evolutionary mobilism, nothing is stable, everything moves, and so on. I think that uh, where our historical experience begins, if I were to be asked, what is historical experience at its zero level? It's, I claim, the experience of a certain impossibility, in the sense of after a true break, a true historical break, you cannot return to the past. You cannot go back as if nothing happened. If you do, of course you can empirically, but if you do, the same practice acquires a radically changed meaning. For example, this is a nice example from Adorno. He refers to Schoenberg's, Arnold Schoenberg's second uh, Viennese school, a tonal revolution in music. And his point, Adorno's, is that, of course, after this revolution took place, of course, we can and we do. We have many of these modern teach composers. You can go on composing in the traditional tonal way. Like, who was doing this exemplarily? I don't know. Mostly, let's say, in Russia, somebody like uh, Rachmaninoff. 
who consciously try to speak to this. But, but Adorno's point is that uh, the new tone, uh, this new tonal music has lost its innocence. It is already mediated by the atonal break and dance functions already as its negation. It's no longer what it was before. What was before, let's say, an immediate authenticity of tonal music becomes now a kind of a fake, kitschy, nostalgic imitation. You get my point? It's no longer the thing itself. It's already mediated by the new thing that emerges. And I'm not saying this is always kitsch. There can be very interesting developments here. For, uh, uh, not only this, I'm not saying we shouldn't return to the past. Hegel is much more refined here. Sometimes the other side of this thesis is its paradoxical opposite. It is that uh, for Hegel, basically the new emerges, emerges almost always in the guise of an illusion of repetition. All really new things emerge as a kind of a illusory return to the origins. For example, the greatest revolution in Christianity, Martin Luther, not King, but the idiot who was licking the ass of the princes, you know. I never forgive him for, uh, forgive Luther King for, you know, when there was Thomas Minzer, the rebellion, the big peasant rebellion, he took sides of the rich guys and uh, killed them like dogs and so on and so on. No? Although there is an anecdote connected with Martin Luther King which also tells you what is wrong with this general historicism. Uh, in East Germany, that's a nice part of the history of ideas, uh, uh, and this year I hope I will be able to show you what is historicist arrogance, where historicism is false. In DDR, East Germany, maybe, if some of you know German culture a little bit 20th century, you know what happened. Uh, 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 being afraid of losing popularity and legitimacy, starting from, you know, you know that already in the 70s, some kind of economic stagnation of uh, communist regime in Eastern Europe started. Basically, till somewhere the Khrushchev era. Khrushchev is an it's easy to make fun of Nikita Khrushchev, but there is some even nice, truthful moment about him. If you read history of Soviet Union, you can immediately get it. Khrushchev was basically the last one where you can say that the ruling nomenclatura somehow still believed, not that they are truly a democratic country, blah, blah, nobody believed this, but that somehow progressing on their, is on their side. They believe that there is a genuine competition between them and the West and that they have a chance of winning. You remember that famous Khrushchev's visit, I think already late 50s, to the United States, where he said, your, grand, your grandsons will be communists, and so on. You know, I, if Brezhnev were to say this, everybody would just laugh. It was the, but what I'm saying is that in this gradual process of losing legitimacy, something very interesting as an ideological movement started to happen. They tried to gain supplementary legitimacy by uh, uh, reinterpreting and appropriating their own nationalist past. For example, it's very interesting how the darkest, harshest power in KGB already started to support 
this Euro-Asian extreme Russian religious Orthodox nationalists, you know, this idea all bad things come from the West. And here again you can see how relative history, how you can manipulate, because I really hate them. Here you can see the racism of many Western Marxists. You know, they have this big problem to explain. Marxism, which started with such a nice theory, global liberation, how could it got so screwed up that it ended with a total catastrophe of Stalinism? The standard answer, totally false, I think, is uh, Asia uh, Asiatic mode of production, Asiatic despotism. That the mistake was that the first revolution happened in Russia. Russia was too much part of the Asiatic world, and so there, the new socialist uh, regime got, as it were, infused with a dose of Asiatic despotism because of the leading role of Soviet Union in the communist movement. They infiltrated others, blah, blah, blah. Total stupidity, totally, totally wrong. But uh, uh, what is interesting, I experienced this when I visited Russia, is that if you ask Russian nationalists, they will tell you exactly the opposite story, which I think has more, it's closer to truth. That no, that if there is a historical model for Stalinism, it's Russian modernizers, is the West. No wonder Stalin liked Peter the Great and those big Tsarist demonstrators, uh, sorry, modernizers. No, if anything, Stalin was the new Peter the Great. You know what Peter the Great is. Abolish Moscow, Petersburg, extremely brutal, violent, global mobilization, imposed modernization. So, but let's go on. So, after, in this period when they start to lose their legitimacy, especially in German Democratic Republic, they started to invent, uh, sorry, to, so they basically tried to appropriate the entire history of their part of Germany, eastern part, Prussia, to cut a long story short, and it's very nice how till late 50s or even mid 60s, Frederick the Great was dismissed, as you know, feudal bourgeois, Prussian militarism. All of a sudden, even Frederick the Great was rehabilitated as progressive bourgeois, modernizer, blah, 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 and so on. No? And, of course, the key element in this modernization, in this reappropriating the past, was Martin Luther. All of a sudden, he was big progressive, son of our people. And I remember seeing in the early 80s, I think, even also on our TV, they did, celebrating his, I don't know, 400, I don't know what, anniversary, I don't know even of what, of life, death, probably death. I don't, uh, they did a big, uh, like, uh, I think, six or ten hours mini-series of Luther's life. Of course, as communists, they had somehow to justify the fact which I mentioned, you know, that Luther turned against the most progressive movement at that point, the peasant. Incidentally, <coughs> Luther did the same with the Jews. No? First, he was totally pro-Jewish, claiming that Jews were right to speak to their religion, because Catholicism was, you know, the core of Babylon and so on, which I think... Today, Rome is the core of Babylon and body, but that's another story. But, but I want to say that, uh, so, so he thought Jews were right, but his idea was, but now that I returned Christianity to its origins, Jews should join us, no? Should convert. 
They didn't, so he became even more ferociously anti-Semitic. Okay, but let's go on. So uh, they had the problem to account for this. How to rehabilitate him as a truly progressive, but nonetheless taking into account his... Uh, his uh, opposition to, to, to this peasant rebellion. So they have, in one installment of this series, they have an encounter of Thomas Mincher, you know, the main, and incidentally he is very interesting if you deal with theology. He not, was not just a great revolutionary leader. Some German friends are telling me Thomas Mincher is well worth reading as a theological writer. He has a wonderful reading of the Bible as an allegory to be used for ongoing political struggle and so on and so on. So uh, they talk, and it's breathtaking naivety, historicist. Minzer said, fuck you, but you said original Christianity return, but that's what it, no class, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Luther answers him with some kind of a, almost a kind of a Marxist avant la lettre where you, he tells Mincer, you are right, but you want already a further popular workers' revolution. But the forces of production are not yet enough developed for that. We first need a bourgeois revolution with personal freedom, property, and only after a couple of hundred of years this will develop, it will be part, you know, this is the impossible position, like, this is what Hegel strictly prohibits. Hegel's absolute knowledge, it's not this, it's precisely this closure when it's clear that you are totally caught in your time, that you cannot, there is no way, how should I put it, to step on your shoulder, and, uh, and say, and how should I put it, to see yourself objectively as what you are. Which is why I think Hegel is much more materialist, and in this sense, to but we will come to this later, totally incompatible with uh, the standard, later, orthodox, Stalinist, historical dialectical materialism, where, what's the standard position of historical materialism. It's not uh, an engaged position, it's based on objective knowledge. I think if you can really understand what Stalin was about, you should read, you get it everywhere on the, on the internet, his big haha, philosophical writing on dialectical and historical materialism, where he explains why Marxist, Marxist theorists joined the workers and contributed to workers' struggle. He said like this, he said that at the end of 19th century the working class was still a minority in Russia, but Marxist scientists saw that although farmers and others were a majority, uh, workers had a great future. They saw the future development. They saw which way the history is running, so they decided to join the winning side, as it were. This is totally anti-authentic Marxist. This idea that first you objectively establish the historical tendency towards end of capitalism, working class revolution, and then you, knowing the tendency of history, posit yourself, you as a particular historical agent, as 
an instrument of realizing this historical necessity. This is what Hegel totally prohibits. That's what Hegel aims at with his well-known, usually interpreted as uh, conservative, saying that, you know, at the end of his introduction to philosophy of right, that the all of Minerva only takes off uh, in the dust and so on, that uh, this is precisely the non-necessary, the open contingent Hegel. For Hegel, an act is always blind. You do something you cannot include into it, you cannot include into the act, as it were, its own result. Not, and now we come to the crucial point, not because history is too complex and we don't know what, but it's not out there that the situation is too complex. It's here. You cannot, you know, it's the problem of self-reference, as it were. You cannot include yourself into the picture. That's why, again, you can only discover a necessity uh, retroactively. And this, as I will try to show today, this is also, it's absolutely crucial how to read Hegel's historical necessity. It's always a retroactive necessity. It's not that history is some process which appears to us participants as contingent, but there is some kind of a uh, reasoning history, absolute hidden subject, who, where it is written in advance, what is history and pulls the strings. No, it, necessity emerges in a retroactive way. There are, uh, how should I put it, once things happen, they retroactively become necessary. In many of my books, especially in this uh, obscenity that you have there, I think I quote this uh, wonderful passage from my f favorite rational choice theoretician, who is a really intelligent guy, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, who, to uh, establish this kind of a strange link between necessity and contingency, quotes a wonderful comment in Le Monde, okay, 20 years ago, there were elections in France, it looks for some time that uh, Edouard Balladur, who was prime minister under Chirac, will maybe blah, blah, blah. Okay, so uh, Le Monde wrote something wonderful. He wrote, if, if Monsieur Balladur will win the next preliminary election, then his victory will be necessary. You know, like, if something happens, but it's contingent if it happens or not, then retroactively the link is established, it becomes necessary. Okay, how does this work? We will go on. Uh, let me just go back to that point. So, again, the zero level of, uh, of uh, historicity is this basic division, this impossibility. We experience history when we all of a sudden discover that something is no longer possible. The way we were doing things. Of course it's possible but it becomes a fake in a way. You know, okay, if you like history of music, this would be a wonderful example. Uh, uh, Rossini. Rossini is clear regression. Rossini, you know that Giacomo Rossini, the barber of Sevilla, you know that he was active before and after with boring, serious operas, but he's well known from his comic operas, all written more or less in the era of 1815-1830. He was the pure composer of restoration. 
the whole ideological point of his operas is let's pretend that French Revolution didn't happen. Let's pretend that we still live in the Ancien Regime. You can detect this clearly if you compare his Barber of Sevilla with the other Figaro piece, Mozart's. Mozart's Figaro piece is clearly announcing revolution. This one is this pure nostalgia. In this sense, of course, uh, in this sense, it's a fake. Which is why we should be very attentive when philosophers pretend to return. Especially in modern European philosophy. Of course, everybody knows the big break is Kant. Kant's transcendental revolution. And again and again, philosophers try to play the game of let's write as if Kant didn't exist. For example, Deleuze says somewhere this openly. He says, my ultimate goal is to, to return to the age of Leibniz, Spinoza, and so on. To write philosophy, to do philosophy in this pre-Kantian systematic way as if Kant didn't exist. Of course, it is easy to show in a close analysis that this cannot be done. That, uh, that uh, now I come back to this point of Luther, that precisely when you do this, it can either be kitschy nostalgia, or it can announce an even more radical revolution. And this would be the nicest point of Hegelian theory of history, that uh, usually the new emerges precisely because you cannot return to the past. When you pretend to return to the past, you either are simply an irrelevant, historically irrelevant, nostalgic kick, or you really do something radical in you. For example, again, Luther, as we all know, he didn't perceive himself as a revolutionary, but on the contrary, returning to the original blah, 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 and he achieved what is arguably the most radical revolution in the history of Christianity. The same goes, for example, this is a nice example of what is historicity. Uh, Pascal, this is why Alain Badiou, Badiou, who will torture you in the afternoon, likes Pascal. He wrote, I think, somewhere in his uh, Being and Event, a very nice analysis of Pascal where he says, there was in Pascal's era already this modernity, Galilean science, and so on, all that. Uh, liberals, early rationalists, simply endorsed modernity. Pascal asked a totally different question. His question was, how can one be modern while still remain an orthodox Christian? And precisely because he insisted on this paradoxical, impossible task, precisely because he didn't simply uh, accept modernity, he is much more read today, he saw much more. Not only in the sense of he had a better understanding of, uh, of modernity, he even saw some limits of modernity and so on and so on. It's the same if you know in the history of cinema. This is historicity. You remember when sound was introduced. It is absolutely clear that it's those who were traumatized by sound, who resisted to it that got immediately much deeper intuition 
into what does sound mean in cinema. For example, this is why I love the early Chap sorry, the early sound Charlie Chaplin movies. You know that he was totally traumatized by sound. And you know how you can exactly isolate in four stages, three or four, the, his gradual acceptance of sound. His first formally sound film, in the sense that it had a soundtrack, was City Lights. There, it's only music and environmental sounds, you know, a car driving, pop, a ball falling down, but all the dialogues are mute and so on. He resists sound. Then you get modern times, a first compromise with speech. You hear speech, but if you saw the movie, you remember, all the speech you hear there is a speech from the media within the narrative. Like, you hear someone talking on the radio. You hear someone singing from a, from a, from a 78 or whatever disc. You don't hear no immediate sounds. The first full sound film, in the sense that actors are talking, is his great dictator. But it's worth seeing, because there you have a kind of a implicit meta-theory of sound. Where, uh, you know the movie, I mean, it's, my God, it's one of the absolute movies, I think. Sorry? He sings in the end of modern times, when he dances in the cafe. Does he sing? Yes, he sings. I'm okay, it's the beginning, positive. you got me here. You know, I talk about movies, I don't yeah, see yeah, them. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but I was right, I thought 99%, that before that he doesn't. But he sings like he's... He sings and dances in the end. But his voice you hear. I'm almost positive it's his voice. Maybe. You are here. Okay. What happens uh, in... Uh, uh, did you notice how the figure of the tramp is split into two, played by two, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in The Great Dictator? You have uh, the poor Jewish barber, who is, although he talks, he's basically the old silent figure, the old tramp. And then you have the bad guy, played also by Chaplin, Hinkel, the dictator. And it's clear that the opposition here is between the good tramp, the old Chaplin, and the new evil figure. Because Hinkel is already introduced as the embodiment of his voice. I think even maybe the first time, I'm not sure, you see Hinkel when the tramp is taking his girlfriend played by his wife, of course, Colette Godard, on, on a stroll in, a, in the ghetto, and all of a sudden, from loudspeakers, you hear this terrible, obscene uh, voice of Hinkel, Hitler, of the dictator, shouting. And it's clear that the sound is... And then you see Hitler's, Hinkel's face, but a kind of a totally distorted face, as if a face distorted by sound. It's not... In the case of dictator Hinkel, it's not the sound, the voice, which is emitted by the body, it's in the way the body which is controlled or just materializes the sound. And at, uh, if you read the film in this way, it's not such a simple film as it is sometimes dismissed, you encounter an incredible amount of wonderful ambiguities. For example, uh, 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 for example, how perversely Hinkel relates, Hinkel, Hitler figure, relates to speech. You remember, 
there are some wonderful scenes. One is where Hinkel dictates his secretary. And Chaplin plays wonderfully on a total gap, non-correspondence between his dictation and what happens. For example, once uh, he says three, four words and the secretary types for one minute. Then he goes on for two minutes and the secretary does ta-ta, do sounds. And then, and then as if playing with your spectators, the shift expectations, the Kinken figure said, oh, something is wrong, looks at what the girl typed and said, oh, oh, okay, you did it right, and so on. Or, you remember when Hinkle has a speech, it's a wonderful speech, total obscenity of a speech, you don't understand anything, only from time to time you identify some totally vulgar, common words, say, Wienerschnitzel, Apfelstrudel, or things like that, and so on. So, what, what he was aware is that something very deep is that human voice is never simply a property of us as a body. That there is always a kind of a ventriloquist aspect to it. That voice is potentially what Lacan calls, uh, what Lacan calls uh, the object A. That, how should I put it? partial organ within you which controls you, a potentially threatened, destabilizing a foreign, foreign intruder. Who? And this is how he plays with voice. It's a wonderful scene in that beginning when we first hear Hinkle's voice, when uh, he's walking with the girl and then a Nazi guy starts to chase them, and then how the whole scene is a kind of a ballet dominated by Hitler's voice. You know, when Hitler goes slowly, the voice they were so, so this idea of a voice, not as a spontaneous, realistic expression, that's what Chaplin saw already. And it's interesting how other intelligent directors also saw, like one of the great early sound movies was Fritz Lang, uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuse, where the topic is exactly the same. Mabuse, the arch criminal, is known as a voice, the problem of the entire film is exactly the same as Hitchcock's Psycho decades later. You have a free-floating voice to find a body for this voice. And this is basically, as Michel Chillon, a very good theorist, elaborated, the problem of Hitchcock's Psycho. It's the problem of the voice, mother's voice, floating around. And the problem is whose voice is this, to find the body to this voice. So, you see my point. Uh, my point is that uh, Chaplin's idea is very Freudian one, naively Freudian, that the sound, sorry, silent movie universe was a kind of a oral, anal, pre-sexual, pre-superego, flat universe of, like cartoons, of undead people where go, uh, life goes on indefinitely, you know? It's a little bit like in cartoon, in all those Max Sennett comedies, you know. You can be hit, you can be run over, you stand up, it always goes on. There is no death, there is no sexuality, basically. Although there are, and I love them, it's maybe my racism and so on, but there are such stupid, if there is sexuality, it's usually reduced to some extremely primitive oral level. For example, I remember... This were times when this was still possible in Hollywood. 
a scene where a lady is taking a bath and, of course, the black guy, the cliché was there, horny all the time, uh, who is carrying a big, big block of ice, takes it up to an apartment and the door is a little bit open, sees the lady there, naked in the bath, and he does, and of course all the ice melts instantly and so on. But you know, this is not sexuality, this is more a primitive oral anal logic, uh, logic. and again, how then uh, uh, it's the... So the important message is this one, is that what uh, sound introduces is not more natural, that the basic impact of sound on cinema was not naturalization. It was not before. There were just silent images. Now we can see real people acting and so on. No. Sound, the voice, speech especially, was from the beginning this sound talk, searching for a body, something haunting you, and so on and so on. And this is basically what Lacan is saying, for example, when he talks about the when he talks about voice as the object smolle, yes? I don't want to drag you even farther to make but is that the issue in Sunset Boulevard? In? In Sunset Boulevard? You can say, yes, you can say that, although there is another Billy Wilder, we don't have time to, <laughs> I would love to go, which goes even much more into these dark consequences of this old young split. Did you see his later movie, Total Failure, Fedora? I know it's a totally strange movie about an actress who has appears young, to be young, and everybody thinks she's doing nice uh, plastic operations, but at the end you learn that she's really an old, totally disfigured lady, and that she simply replaced herself by her daughter. And it's such a totally pessimistic, totally, it's the so dark... Is it a box office failure, but does it have any philosophic intellectual logistic merit? Mm, not even, no, it didn't even arouse great attention at this level, at this level. Just a curiosity. Just, uh, no, but I think it should be, I think it, but you know, we, cinema theorists, this is our favorite sport, to discover to focus on a failure and then to claim, oh, but this is the true masterpiece. Like, I even wanted, once planned with Fred Jameson to do a whole book on Hitchcock's failures, playing the game of choose a Hitchcock movie which was obviously a failure and pull it out. <laughs> for example, uh, in France, there was a whole school in early 50s where the candidate for this failure, which is really the masterpiece, was a rather embarrassing Australian melodrama, did you see it under Capricorn? You see, you even don't know it from, I think, 52, 53. Totally ridiculous story of Ingrid Bergman living with an ex-convict there, some melodrama and so on. There was the school in France, this is the true Hitchcock. Fred Jameson's choice is, is uh, but I think there it is even a good movie. It's the one with Marlene Dietrich, Stage Fright. You know, it's a movie which is famous for uh, false... Hitchcock violates a, a rule there. You know, the flashback. The rule is that if you show a flashback, it should be true. That you cannot lie at the level of flashback. <laughs> Hitchcock lies, you discover at the end. Because at the beginning, the hero encounters a girl, tells her what is happening. At the end, we discover, not just tells her, 
we see. No? Okay, my choice would have been, and I still think it's an extraordinary movie, it's the lowest of the lowest, considered Hitchcock's worst movie, Topaz. You know that anti-communist movie, Cuba, and so on. Okay, but we are getting lost now, I admit it. So I, what I wanted to tell you is this, where we experienced a historical break at its purest, with this impossibility and how precisely, how to put it, uh, how because of these precisely conservatives who want to stick to the old, usually see more, see the uncanny, for example here, it was those who thought, oh, movie, uh, sound movie is just a chance to do either musicals or more realistic dramas who are today forgotten. What we are still looking for is precisely those who resisted sound and then tried to use it in different ways and so on. But let me go on. So, okay, we have this situation. Now, uh, the, uh, your first obvious association, if you know a little bit of philosophy, would have been that, but is Hegel's speculative absolute idealism not precisely the supreme case of such historical impossibility? The idea is that Hegel is the last big example of radical idealism, where you can, as it were, cover the entire reality through the self-deployment, self-mediation of the notion, notion in the sense of concept. And the idea is simply that, and there is a convincing point to this, that after Hegel, we have this famous post-Hegelian break. The whole series of figures, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Marx, but also Freud, the rise of mathemati mathematical natural sciences, that simply after this post-Hegelian break, you can no longer be seriously Hegelian. That, you know, it's simply not possible. It's a fake, an anti-historical illusion if you... You basically, if you try to be Hegelian today, you simply act as if the post-Hegelian break didn't happen. What was this? Uh, what was this break? It's easy to establish. It was a kind of a. It was basically what Badiou likes to refer to as anti-philosophy. The idea is that the scene of philosophy, of philosophical ideas, is perceived as a secondary scene of representation, a screen, and then you assert some real, more substantial life process which makes this movement of ideas, sphere of ideas, just a kind of a passive, secondary, illusory reflection. The first one to do this was, of course, even before Schopenhauer already uh, the late Schelling, Friedrich Schelling, who claimed there is the living reality, irrational abyss of will, of willing, the life of will, which is more substantial than ideas, and that Hegel is simply cheating. He tries to prove this in detailed analysis, how at the beginning of the logic where Hegel proposes the triad being nothing becoming, that becoming if is to be actual becoming. Already 
presupposes some positive being. This is how Ben Schelling uh, distinguishes between uh, positive and negative philosophy. For him, Hegel is a negative philosopher, not in the bad sense, just, but in the sense of Hegel just deploys the conceptual structure of reality, what reality is, all possible forms. But something is missing the positive being of reality. You know, as it were, the living substance. Hegel provides just, in his idealism, the great shadow of reality, which is why Schelling focuses on, as the greatest Hegel's failure, on Hegel's deduction at the end of logic of how idea, sorry, logic when it fully realizes itself in the shape of absolute idea, passes into nature, releases itself into nature. For Schelling, this is no deduction at all, Hegel is simply cheating there. He knows all the time that nature exists and he just pretends to deduce nature from the self-movement of concepts and so on and so on. That's Schelling. Then you know Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is the great anti-Hegelian. Really, like, uh, personally, he hated Hegel. When he was young, he even did, he was already private docent, this lower level private process at the same Berlin University as Hegel, and I know if you know this, he was so competitive that he on purpose did his classes at, at the same time as Hegel. Of course, nobody came, but he was so furious, and so on, and so on. Although there is one good thing about his family. You know that Hegel, uh, Goethe was married with that Christiane Vulpius, the, the lower class girl. He loved her, and so on. It was a very long love. Finally, Hegel married, uh, Goethe married her. And, uh, and she was totally ignored by all high society. One must admit that Schopenhauer, and especially his mother, we're honest here. It's a famous saying, you know. Schopenhauer's mother invited once Heg uh, Goethe and his wife, and then with some other guests protested. She said, when this lady is good enough for Goethe's bed, she must be good enough for our table. I mean, it's a nice saying and so on. But what I'm saying is that with Schopenhauer, you know, it's the same. It's this, the irrational will, the will already... Schelling uses it. This idea that before all notional movement and so on, there is this positivity of the will, of pure willing, which then, of course, later develops in Leben's philosophy, in life philosophy, then in a similar, although different way, it's Kierkegaard, of course, with him, it's not this stupid irrational willing, it's the individual with the absurd of believing this absolute decision, leap of faith, and so on. For Kierkegaard also, this is the intense actuality of subjective authenticity, which cannot in any way be covered up by this abstract Hegelian movement of notions, and so on, and so on. And why not? Let's add to this series Marx. Marx. For Marx also, you know, you have this famous... Uh, in what is the worst of Marx, I think, German ideology. That famous phrase uh, that true science of life is with regard to speculative philosophy like real sexual act is to masturbation. Or, again, this idea that Hegel, Hegel is mystifying reality is describing just some kind of uh, ideal, conceptual, pseudo-self-movement and then Marx has all this 
rather primitive reductions to real life. It's not idea which is developing, moving itself. Is it real people who, while thinking, develop ideas and so on? This old boring idea that Hegel confuses the subject and the predicate. It's not individuals who are predicates or moments in the self-development of the idea. It is idea thinking, which is just predicate of a real life-asserting individuals and so on and so on. This is what Badiou refers to as anti-philosophy. That is to say, this idea that if at least you can... Uh, and then there are, of course, other elements here where I think a more convincing critique of Hegel can be made. Like, you know, one problem with Hegel, there you really have Hegel's limitation, is mathematics. Hegel dismisses mathematics as so-called uh, spurious, dead, infinity, just repetitive. He cannot see, there is no space for this modern mathematic which includes all the paradoxes of self-reference and so on. There is no space for this in Hegel. There is the problem of natural sciences. You can claim, I think it's more ambiguous, that what Hegel does in his critique of Newton is simply he dismisses Newton as a primitive knowledge, positive natural sciences at the level of uh, at the level of some kind of a mechanical approach and in a more or less romantic way Hegel tries to provide a more organic account of nature and so on and so on. So again, the idea is that all this universe of formalized mathematicized sciences, which the incredibly important role in production and so on. Also, the Freudian universe of pure repetition, what Freud called Wiederholungszwang, when things repeat themselves without any Hegelian movement of Aufhebung, where, you know, by repetition you are elevated to a higher level. Just pure compulsion to repeat, there simply is no place for all this in Hegel. So, again, that's the post-Hegelian break. And, again, one can say that this break, this historical break, is a fact. You cannot simply play the game as if this didn't happen and let's return to Hegel. Uh, I think you can. No. Why? How? I think I will first just give you the coordinates, then we will return tomorrow to this more in detail. I think that uh, uh, I, I will not just now give you the demonstration, explanation, just to provide the coordinates. I think that uh, something different happens here. Uh, namely, that uh, what should make you suspicious is how Hegel is this totally ridiculous image of Hegel. Even people who have a certain sympathy for, for example, if they are oriented towards the so-called Anglo-Saxon analytic thought, if they have a certain sympathy for so-called continental philosophy, many of them, it's very fashionable today. Even scientists like to refer, for example, to Spinoza. You know, Damasio wrote a book claiming Spinoza practically proto-brain scientist, so many things and so on. Uh, uh, 
All of them are good. Leibniz, Bertrand Russell liked Leibniz and so on. Kant is usually the limitation. Kant is usually the last that this analytic Anglo-Saxon orientation is ready to swallow. After Kant, for them, it's just obscenity. Although, yeah, 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 if your mind is as dirty and as mine, I know you can say, but wait a minute, it's a philosopher, I know the accent is different, whose name is an obscenity, no? And this is why when I gave a talk, yes, I'm, you know, I'm well known in my country that whenever in the line of thought there is just a slight opening towards a tasteless obscenity, I will take that road, you know, like, like, but once I was surprised I didn't do it consciously. I gave 20 years ago in, at Berkeley a talk called Kant and Hitchcock. And then told me, oh, you have both of them in the This surprised even me. I mean, somehow I wasn't aware of that. Okay, so let's go on. So what I want to say is that uh, what should make you suspicious is when a certain critique paints the enemy as an openly absurd image. You know, this image of Hegel, absolute knowledge, the one who thought he can penetrate the mind of God, because, you know, somewhere he, ironically, Hegel characterizes his logic as what went on in the mind of God before the creation of the world and so on. So my hypothesis is the following one. Uh, that Hegel is a so-called vanishing mediator between traditional metaphysics and the post-Hegelian turn to actual reality anti-philosophy. But I think it's not simply as people who try partially to rehabilitate Hegel, like Charles Taylor. Incidentally, his Hegel is, I think, one of the worst books on Hegel. It should be burned publicly. <laughs> it's not in the sense that Hegel was in between, you know, still idealist, but already moments of historicism, historical description. No. My point is that something unique happened in Hegel, and I will spend the rest of the time today and tomorrow to try to give you at least some indications what, that something unique happened there, unthinkable. Even today we don't really know what, so that uh, it is not if we try to be Hegelians today that we <coughs> behave as if the post-Hegelian break didn't happen, it's on the contrary. The entire post-Hegelian this anti-philosophy, which is one desperate attempt to obliterate what Hegel did. Hegel went too far. And uh, I think that it's this post-anti-philosophy which does this by getting rid of Hegel, how? By way of constructing this ridiculous image of Hegel, which, for which I think we should use this Freudian term, you know, screen memory. You know, screen memory as a false, obviously ridiculous figure, concealing some truly traumatic excess. I think that Hegel that we know is mostly this kind of deck erinnerung. A very comfortable, ridiculous image. It's easy to laugh at him. <laughs> that idiot, a poor employer of the Prussian Ministry of Education who knows, who thought he knows everything and so on, but was just doing some uh, ridiculous mechanical, logical reasoning. And if they 
conceit that sometimes Hegel did have bright insights. The idea is that, yes, from time to time he had a sense of observation, he made good points, but it is all spoiled by his this mechanical application of this dialectical machinery which can swallow which can swallow everything. So again, what that will be my thesis, to give you some arguments for this opposite reading. That no, it's the post-Hegelian break which misses something in Hegel. And this is also, I think, in accordance with a more general historical theory, which I like. I developed it already in one of my early books that I think for the non of what they do. This idea, I took a term from Fred Jameson of vanishing mediator as a crucial figure of historical development. What is vanishing mediator? Vanishing mediator is not simply something which is a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, like you pass, for example, you pass from religious metaphoric universe, divine meaning everywhere, to modern, secular, grey mechanic universe, and then you can nicely show how you have figures which are in between. Usually it is they already use the new terminology, but still deal with the old topic. I'm not saying there are not wonderful things which often happen here. For example, my favorite vanishing mediator between medieval universe and modern mechanical materialism is Malbranche. Read him. Oh my God, he is a genius. It's a French theologist, a pupil of Descartes, Nicolas Malbranche, who radicalized Descartes in a totally crazy way. But as often, you can find wonderful, bright insights in this total madness. The starting point of Malbranche was, you know, what was Descartes? idea, this radical dualism. We have two substances, res cogitans, the thinking substance, and res extensa, the extended material substance. Already you can see what is missing here, life. Descartes has no space for life. For Descartes there are only mechanisms and spirit, which is why all these holistic, holistic New Agers hate Descartes. He's the big bad guy for all of them, from Al Gore downwards. This is the worst of Al Gore, when he says Descartes guilty of everything and so on. On the, on the contrary, I think Descartes is one of the big good guys. But, okay, uh, uh, what did Malbranche do? Sorry for making these detours, but I'm not losing track, they are crucial. Uh, uh, Malbranche did something, did, you know, then Descartes had a problem, how are the two connected? The, for example, in us, as human beings, our soul, the thinking substance, and our body. His solution was totally ridiculous. He found, you know, he liked to do the uh, anatomy and so on, so he found this, how do you call it, pineal gland or what, no? One gland... Pineal. Which, sorry? Pineal. Pineal, sorry, yes, yes. And uh, it drew his attention because it's only one. It was the only one which was one. So he thought... This is, as it were, the point of passage. It's through that gland that our soul gets impressions from the body and returns orders 
back to the body. Like, to put it very simply, if you decide to move to raise your hand, you think about it, you give an order, an order passes through this stupid gland to your nerves and so on. It's ridiculous, obviously. Sorry? Didn't he call it the seat of the soul? Yeah, the bodily seat of the soul, yes. But nonetheless, for him, the soul was substantially, totally different. He was a radical dualist. He would never have uh, accepted that, how to put it, the soul really is there. It's a little bit like, let me tell you another interesting philosophical story. Uh, I always had big debates with theologists. A couple of points I don't get. You know that it's very fashionable, especially for Catholics, to oppose biogenetic manipulations. No? Their story is, no, we are not just, we are not just uh, neuronal automata, we have an immortal soul, so don't mess with the brain. Now, I asked them, and I still didn't find a good answer. Maybe you will give it to me from the theological side. A very simple counter-argument. Isn't this way to reason contradictory? If you are convinced that you are not just a neuronal automata, that you have an immaterial, immortal soul, why do you worry then what do I do with your brain? You say, fuck off, do whatever there, I'm not there, I have a soul, you know. So why do they say, we have an immortal soul, but then the conclusion, so you shouldn't mess? I think it goes back to natural law, what the Catholics believe in natural law. And what is natural law? Well, God constructed our bodies, our nature, this way, and we shouldn't fuck with it. Yeah, but, but uh, okay, but, but nonetheless... Uh, yeah, but, okay, but this, this is more complex. This already you introduce further hypothesis. How should I put it? You have. Yeah, I think there's a better Aristotelian account. A lot of them will say that the, the functional dynamic of the body is the condition for you to have in the, the immaterial principle of the mind. So if you change the functional dynamics, you're, you're, you run into the same possibility as killing somebody in terms of manipulating that. That's principle. Uh, tricky, because you know that here, again, as if you are truly an orthodox, in the good sense now, Christian, I think you should reject this. Okay, now this brings us into theological waters, but I think that I'm totally anti-Aquinas. I think he was the great Aristotelizer, how should I put it, of, of Christianity. And I simply, I don't think, but so that you will not say that I'm only making fun, one priest gave me an intelligent metaphor here. He said, imagine our brain as a radio receiver. Of course, our soul is immortal. But in order for our body to receive the message of our soul, we need a finely attuned radio receiver, which is our brain. And God created it to receive. To and then the idea is that if we mess with our brain, it's just ruining the radio and then you no longer receive the message. This is the most intelligent, at least for me. That, but, but I have another problem, we can talk about it here, and it brings us back to Hegel. Uh, I think this is another example where we should go further than Hegel. But being good Hegelians. Namely, Hegel uh, 
another enigma I had, and maybe you can help me here, uh, with, uh, with Christianity is why do why does the church advocate this weird notion? Basically, I simplified, but nonetheless, it is that if sex is only sex for procreation is specifically human, that you just do it out of pure lust, it's just animal coupling. My totally naive counter-argument isn't the exact opposite of the truth. I mean, animals are doing it in this biologically determined treatment. They don't screw all the time, as we at least try to do. <laughs> they do it just in the season for mating because it has this function and so on and so on. Uh, isn't it that it's absolutely ridiculous to claim that in a true... I mean, it's even degrading for me, for what is not only physical, but if you want, truly spiritual about a truly intense, out-of-love sexual act. It's clearly not just some mechanical lust copulating, but it's clearly ridiculous to claim that that more, that surplus is somehow... Uh, has to do, it may have, it may not have with procreation. What would be your answer? It, it seems like there's a weird alliance between Richard Dawkins' notion of the self as gene, yeah. like where only exists as genes are yeah. reproduced, and the church's philosophy. And, and both, uh, Steve Pinker told me this, both do not leave room for choice, for affirming one's self, one's sexuality, one's being beyond that reductive principle. I there agree, with, I agree with you, and let me tell you something else here. This is why I think uh, Dawkins is inconsistent. You remember that uh, famous passage towards the end, if I remember correctly, of his selfish, selfish dreams, where he introduces the famous idea of how do you pronounce it? Mem. Mim. M-E-M-E. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I pronounced it in my primitive Slavic. Our writing is much simpler. We it's, write... me it's meant to rhyme with gene. I know, of course, that's the point, of course. So, uh, uh, when he says, but we are not slaves simply of our genes, because we can think, we can, as it were, become master, I mean, he does, he simply postulates a space of freedom for which I think he doesn't account enough. In he, and he was relatively intelligently criticized here by some other uh, evolutionists. And I'm not here just playing, again, what I'm saying, let me, and you will see where this brings us back to Hegel. Uh, uh, I'm not just playing here the game of uh, 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 who is right. Uh, uh, the problem is more complicated. Uh, how the properly Hegelian view of sexuality should be, I claim, much closer to a Freudian one. It is not that simply you have, this is how, you, how even Hegel himself, but I claim here, I mean, we should be here fearless and outdo Hegel where it's necessary. Show where Hegel, okay, as a fanatic I will say, the only legitimate criticism of Hegel is to show that Hegel is not Hegelian enough. No, well, when he talks about sexuality, a little bit towards the end of his philosophy of nature, and then when he speaks in civil society but about marriage and so on, no? He basically adopts this, how should I call it, culturalization hypothesis. 
this idea is that sexuality is a natural substance, no? Animals screw the way they do, blah, blah. But we gradually civilize it, sublimate it, whatever, no? Like, sorry, I will try to be not like, I want to seduce a woman or a man or many women or many men. This is, I do always to annoy Judith Butler when we talk, because she's opposed to binary logic. So I said, okay, let's be against binary logic. Why not only one partner, more partners, and so on. So that, that instead of just, I don't know how animals do, smelling your juices there if you are wet and then boom or whatever, no. We write poetry, we do all the shit we do. But basically we are slowly elaborating, how should I put it, reworking, culturalizing natural substance. Instead of smelling the disgusting smell or what, we have perfume. Instead of those whatever animal sounds, we write lovely. The idea is that there is some kind of a natural substance of sexuality which we gradually civilize, culturalize. I claim something is missing here. Uh, what is missing is what Freud would have called death drive. And what in entire German idealism, you already find it in Kant, I located it for the first time, where Kant talks about, in a wonderful, they're totally neglected today, writing on education. Kant talks, mentions some kind of a wilderness of a human being, exemplary, can be discerned in a wild child, the child whom you cannot discipline, whom you cannot make obey the orders. And Kant says that something absolutely crucial there, which then repeats itself in Schelling, in Hegel. He says, this wild, undisciplined character, you know, a child who resists, beats, and so on, he says, this is not animal nature. Animals have instincts, they follow the instincts. It's a kind of a derailment of instincts. It's already denaturalized nature, but it's not yet culture. You know, and that would be the proper Hegelian view, that that excess which we try to civilize through culture is not nature. It's the vanishing mediator. It's a, and I think that the Freudian name for this excess is death drive. Or Oh, sexuality, what is sexuality? What are we humans? Our sexuality is not the animal coupling. You eat, you shit, you sleep, and incidentally, when I'm in a bad mood, I almost would like to be dead. I read a story about uh, some stupid bears or what animals who in the winter, they grow fat, and then for the six months of winter, they sleep every month, they awaken, they go to urinate, drink and fuck, and go to sleep again. For as close as I can imagine happiness, if you ask me, frankly. But what I'm saying is that, as everybody will tell you, human desire is denaturalized, it's eternalized, how should I put it? It goes on and on and on, never... And Kant says very nicely something crucial there. He says that it is because of this excess of, of instinct which is no longer the natural instinct which just directs you towards survival. Mating time, you should mate, 
you should kill other animals to eat whatever. It's a kind of a much more excessive disorder, to use Shakespeare, out of joint wilderness. And then Kant says, this is why we humans need masters. And he provides a wonderful definition of man. He says, man is an animal who needs a master. Precisely to tame this excess, which again, which is not animal, which is not animal. And you find the same in shaming, even in Hegel, at the beginning of his philosophy of spirit, that I already mentioned, anthropology, when he talks about madness, this excess of madness as the zero level of subjectivity. And for Hegel, our culture, which begins at the most elementary level with habits, and Hegel has wonderful developments there, where he says that we humans are totally being of habits. We even die out of habit. We live out of habit, and so on. Uh, so again, I think this is what we should take into account with regard to sexuality. It's not directly nature culture. The lesson of psychoanalysis is there is something in between. This excess that Freud calls death drive and so on and so on. Because, and you find it in all big erotic myths. I mean, for example, Tristan and Isolde. What is this? Their love is obviously, it's formulated like this, it's transcultural, you know. They want to drown in this excess of absolute drive, absolute enjoyment, violating all social rules, blah, blah, blah. But it's also not nature, it's clearly, you don't find this excess in nature. So, the result to arrive at, at this level is that uh, the, it's not directly that culture breaks with nature. You have in between some kind of what Freud calls Todestrip, death drive, a kind of, how should I call it, absolute insistence, impossible insistence, which is why it has to repeat itself definitely. And the problem of culture is, again, to symbolize, to restabilize that. And this, if you allow me another Hegelian reflection, this brings me back to, you asked me yesterday, Steve Pinker. Uh, you know what is the big problem of uh, this kind of, a, how to call them, this is why I'm on the side of Stephen Jay Gould, so-called utilitarian accounts of, of, uh, of mind and language and so on. Uh, the problem is to account for this mystery that why are we doing so many things which do not have any survival, adaptive, utilitarian value. Okay, I know that quite often they are success, very successful here. For example, in explaining, there is a wonderful book, I quote it, I think, in my, uh, was it, is it in the second part of Parallax View even, at the end? Yeah, 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 I think that, 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 uh, 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 no, 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 behavioral biologist who tries to account for this section, for the, in adaptive terms, why this totally non-functional excess of parade of displaying in sexual seduction. For example, you know, 
something like, how do you call it? I always forget the English name. Who is that stupid animal with big, big, big... Uh, peacock, yes. Why peacock? I mean, from the adaptive standpoint of view, it's stupidity. It's the most uh, irrational thing to do. He cannot even properly move and so on. He provides a nice account for that. That's the message. I'm so strong that I can afford it. You know, it's in the same way to seduce a girl with a ring for one million dollars. Like, I know it has no function, but I can afford it. Uh, okay, but what I'm saying is that Pinker is weak at another level. You remember, if you know, we are talking about Steven Pinker. No, the, it, this is the guy who sees rap, who has a Goebbels reaction if you mention France, French thought, and so on, deconstruct, whatever. Okay, he asks a simple question, uh, which is a rational question. Why... Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he tries, you know, there is a big debate among brain scientists of why can't we understand how our mind works. Why are we... The, and then, you know, some of them, like, I don't know, McGuinness or who, try to claim that in a materialist, but they're not idealists, but just to claim that that's how, how our mind is structured. It's a priori structured in such a way that it cannot understand itself. And Pinker tries to provide a totally evolutionary account. He says, I quote him almost literally, here I don't simplify. He says that, uh, that it's for the same reason that a rabbit cannot do, I don't know, differential calculus or what. Our mind was created for certain survival adaptive reasons. It wasn't created, it didn't emerge, develop to understand itself, it emerged to, to, to construct tools, to deal with nature, for mating or cooperation, deal with, and that's why it was created. And it can do, of course, things for which it was created. And in the same, so in the same way that rabbit doesn't need for his survival differential mathematics and so on. We don't need for our survival to understand ultimate reality, God, soul. You know, you just look for what the mind was created. Even if this is true, I have, as I developed in this book, one big naive problem. But there is one big difference between a rabbit and us. A rabbit doesn't even bother about differential calculus. Why do we humans always bother with impossible tasks. Why, why are we, as it were from the very beginning, try to um, ask metaphysical questions, to put it this way? Why don't we simply say, okay, we can't understand it, uh, let's drop it. And I think that we can go even further. One can show that all great inventions, utilitarian inventions, like new machines and so on, that the usual logic of discovery was not, oh, we have a problem, we should invent it. First, it was always that you invented something out of pure metaphysical speculation, useless, and then application always comes secondary. So it's not this primitive Marxist economic reductionism which says we, we developed machines for production and then rich people can use them as toys and so on. You know the history of modern machinery 
in the 17th century already. You get, I don't know how many machineries in the court of Louis XIV and so on, they were used to produce rain, spectacles, dolls and so on. First, they were widely constructed for just for amusement to fascinate application games came afterwards and so on. So uh, my point is that I would I'm tempted to link this with what I was saying before. The true mystery for me, as it were, is that again back to sexuality. That's Hegel. It's not that we have our natural sexuality which is gradually civilized and so on and so on. No. Natural sexuality gets denaturalized in some kind of deadly passion, crazy insistence. This is what was the enigma for Freud from the very beginning. How is it that, and incidentally, uh, even I know some uh, brain scientists or rather behavioral scientists who are doing things with apes and told me some interesting, even empirical data at this level. A guy whom I know, a Turkish name, given visual there. In, uh, at Duke University, he's doing experiments, not cruel ones, not the one where you do horror, with apes. And he told me that it's interesting how is there is a difference between ape and human being when you pose, is that apes are generally more rational even. In the sense of if you make with an ape the experiment of simply, uh, the experiment of let's say, a uh, very primitive experiment, he told me. You propose to a male ape a beautiful, very attractive sexual partner and a B-level sexual partner. First, the ape tries to get to the more attractive partner. But after some time, when the ape sees he cannot do it, he says, okay, fuck off, he goes to the... He, it's very rational calculation. Why? With men, we are much more, we persist to the end. You never, you know, the more it is impossible, the more you stick to it, and so on and so on. This, let's call it internalization of desire, which then produces something which, and that's how I read Freud, brings us to death drive. Death drive has nothing to do whatsoever, that's the ABC, I hope you know it, with that nirvana sheet and so on. Death drive is exactly the opposite. I claim, if you read Freud closely, death drive is Freudian name for immortality. What Freud calls death drive is some, something that insists, as it were, beyond life and death. Figures of death drive are like vampires, living dead, and so on and so on. And my thesis, which I develop repeatedly in my books, without this you cannot understand not only Hegel, but none of the classical philosophy, is that uh, this is what explodes in German idealism. That, and this is what I'm trying to do basically in all my work. Reading mutually like German idealism to psychoanalysis, not in order to reduce German idealism just to psychology, but to elevate Freud to a thinker. For example, sorry if you know this line, but it's wonderful works, I want to repeat it, it works wonderfully. Uh, the best account of that drive I found is just in a small, like some little deduction in Kant's critique of pure reason, 
where he mentions Immanuel Kant two types of negation. He mentions uh, the uh, he distinguishes negative judgment and infinite judgment. It's very simple to understand. Kant says negative judgment negates a predicate, a infinite judgment asserts, affirms a non-predicate. You will say, what's the point? It's the same sheet. No, it's not. Why not? Let's go to Stephen King territory and you will see why not. Let us negate the predicate dead. First, as a negative judgment. If I say you are not dead, what does this mean? You are alive, nothing special. No, we have just the space of life dead, you are not dead, you are alive. Okay, but think about Let us say not you are not dead, but you are undead. Uh, uh, uh. This means something quite different. This doesn't mean you are simply alive. It means you are alive as dead. You are a living dead. You know, a third domain is open of some obscene life which insists beyond life and death, and so on. And my claim, this vampiric, as it were, undeath, all the vampires and so on, this, is, this space is opened by Kant, and this is the space of this absolute negativity, death drive, and so on and so on, which was conceptualized by, by German idealism. And this is the excess with which culture dialectical formulate dialectical mediation tries to deal and with Hegel now you will say but wait a minute for Hegel this is only a starting point but at the end we have this perfect reconciliation all in peace and so on no that's what I will try to prove to you more tomorrow than today just give you Hegel was well aware that that this excess of negativity cannot ever be culturalized, which is why, for example, just to give you one hint, in contrast to Kant, Hegel didn't believe in eternal peace, because he thought that, uh, you know, the way Hegel is presented, perfect modern bourgeois society, all the particular interests are harmonized in the common good, you reconcile with society and so on, Hegel thinks that, not because he was a militarist, but he thought that there always is the threat that this radical negativity, this excess, will explode again and again. And again, this excess is neither life nor neither life nor the, or neither nature nor culture. So you see, now we already got the first abstract idea of how the Hegelian progress, let's put it in this way, looks. It's not simply you have a natural substrate and then progressively you develop more and more culture. No. Once you are in culture, retroactively you denaturalize nature. You know, culture doesn't only civilize natural distincts. The price we pay to move into culture is that what before was a simple natural instinct like I want to screw one month a year when smells tells me this is a mating season or what, becomes an absolute, eternal, suicidal, repetitive drive, which is crucial for Freudian notion of death drive, that it's a repetitive drive. Repetitive in the sense that, as Lacan put it, puts it very precisely, 
in this distinction he uses English terms here Lacan between aim and goal. Goal is what you officially want, let's say to achieve something, but for Lacan the true satisfaction of the drive is the circular movement of the drive itself. You don't want to achieve, it's like boomerang, you don't want to hit it, you want it to come back and try again and again and the true satisfaction is provided by this very circular movement and so on and so on. Which is why for Freud, who is here a good Hegelian, which is why for Freud uh, sexual satisfaction it's always, you know, it's, you know when Freud talks about this foreplay, it's never simply foreplay is a goal to the final goal, big penetration, whatever, sexual act. There is always a danger that the foreplay will turn into a self-goal, how should I put it? I want to tell you here a story told to me by nice British Lacanian, very good popularizer of Lacan, but also independently of this, not an idiot, uh, Darian Nieder. In his, I think, one of the first books, he, it's a very simple example, I mentioned it in one of my books, he quotes the example of, very simple one, of how one of his patients, you want to blackmail me or what? <laughs> uh, uh, told me that, uh, I mean with like this nasty horrible, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, uh, that told him of a strange, a strange slip of tongue that happened to him. He took a lady to a restaurant with the obvious goal of seducing her later. And while approaching and reserving a table, he made the obvious slip of tongue. Instead of saying, table for two, please, he said, a bed for two, please, <laughs> to the waiter. Now, the primitive pseudo-Freudian interpretation would have been, of course, his mind was, was already up there, blah, blah, blah. Ah, Darian Leder proposed a totally different interpretation, that he was afraid that, how should I put it, that the foreplay would overshadow the official goal itself, as it were. He was afraid that in this, this hierarchical order, we go to eat, just, it's just a pretext to go to bed later, that he will enjoy too much what should be, following the official hierarchy of seduction, just the preparatory step. So it was more a defense against enjoying too much the foreplay, the beginning. He wanted to convince you, he said, no, 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 it's not eating, I really want to, it's really about, you know. It's, I think, a much more intelligent explanation. Which is why, to conclude the first part, with lovingly racist joke about, maybe if you, the two of you from ex-Yugoslavia, you know those wonderful jokes, some of them are metaphysical, two Bosnians, Mujo and Hasso, no? One of them, I saw, you know that in Slovenia, they're extremely popular, we did a movie series, like, you get a DVD, some hundreds of their, their wonderfully vulgar, but some of them very metaphysical jokes. And one of them has the same logic. This is what I was talking about. This is human desire. Sorry if I put it, I don't mean it. He says that Mujo and his Fata is his wife, uh, they want to make love and Fata wants to excite him to do 
Felicia, and he says, now I will do Felicia, I masturbate him, now I will, I will, I will, how do you put it, I will, I will make it sweet like a cake, then to eat your penis, no, and he says, now here I put cream, whipped cream on it, I put a cherry on it, and, and uh, then she wants to start to suck, and we say, no, this is so nice, I want to suck, I want to suck. Ah, that's the Balkan wisdom. You, you know, that was what the patient was, was afraid there. No? Okay, we didn't say a, a lot about Hegel, we will go on in part two. Okay, now we do the short break. Yeah, so, no, 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 I see, uh, look, here you got me, because, as you know, first I shared Lacan's big distrust of Nietzsche, because you know that this is, there are a couple of mysteries in Jacques Lacan, for example, practically total absence of Nietzsche, he mentions Nietzsche just a couple of times, and usually in a dismissive way, like, I think in the ethical catalysis he said that to speak about beyond good and evil, it's, uh, it's saying too much. You say exactly the same if you just say beyond the good and so on. So it's more this kind of a nasty aggressivity. I think he was wrong, but I somehow, I don't know, couldn't, and then, okay, I can make propaganda for my friend, my part of my Slovene gang, Alenka Zupancic. She did that book, The Shortest Shadow. She practically, she practically converted, me, convert, converted me to Nietzsche. No? Although, you know, I'm very interested in this problem, Nietzsche and Wagner, because, you know, it's much more ambiguous. Nietzsche really didn't get rid of Wagner up to the end. You know that when Nietzsche collapsed, got crazy, the text he was working on was this, there are two, not der Fall Wagner, Nietzsche contra Wagner, where he tried, sorry? Yeah, 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 where he tried to prove that he was always against Wagner and so on. So obviously, this was a, this was a problem, uh, this was a problem for Nietzsche, but again, I mean, well, of course, I'm still working on that, in no, the sense... No, the question was a different one. Yeah, Nietzsche just popped up in the conversation. Yeah, I know, no. Okay, so... Uh, uh, you know what, let's do another line where we will reach Hegel. Only at the end, and then this is an endless task. Tomorrow we shall go on, and so on, and so on. First, I want to begin, I did some of this stuff in my books, but I will, don't worry, I will give a different twist at the end. I will try to account for what Hegel means with concrete universality. This is usually taken as Hegel at his craziest, no? You know, this idea that uh, you, our usual nominalist view is we all know there is full, concrete reality from which we abstract some features, like I look at people, I say I'm a freak, you are nicer, blah, 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 but there are some features we share, uh, two legs, whatever, blah, 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 that's the, but Hegel, this is how it is usually perceived, that Hegel was a crazy guy who thought that somehow you can develop the entire concrete content out of just abstract self-movement of 
the universal notion. So was he crazy? What did he mean by this? I want to give you some examples here. Let's hope we'll finish it. I want to begin with the great anti-Hegelian. They are often... Hegel is a tricky guy. Often you should look for truly Hegelian insights into when you get a guy who is absolutely explicitly anti-Hegel, but then says something with urge. Okay, I would like to go to Deleuze. You know this, that if there is an anti-Hegel, it's Deleuze. I would like to start with Deleuze's notion of pure difference, <coughs> linked with repetition. The idea of pure difference is uh, repetition, which is repetition absolutely of the same. Nothing changes. You repeat the same, and there you produce a pure difference, radical difference. This is how but Deleuze, I claim, in a very Hegelian view, argues how new emerges out of a repetition. I would like to uh, give you two examples. I use them in some of my books. I will try to give, again, a different twist, at least to them here. Uh, I like classical music. I like Robert Schumann. One of the masterpieces by Schumann is Humoresque. Where he does something wonderful. I, do we have here? I, even I will play this game. I take this boasting with the strings and so on. But I will. Oh, it looks bad. Everything will collapse. No, it will not. Okay. Uh, you know, this uh, piece of piano is something, does something very strange. It's written on three lines of notes. You have left hand right hand, and then you have something very mysterious, which was popular in German uh, romantic music, so-called Augenmusik, music just for the eye. So let's say one note line, the middle one, the lower. Let's say this is what you play with the left hand, what you play with the right hand, and what you play here. Of course, his idea, a typically romantic one, was that when you play, it's very Deleuzean idea of virtual, virtuality. And you know the precise nature of what Deleuze calls virtual. Virtual, it's not just possible what may be. Virtual is something which, as possible, as non-actual, already exerts an efficiency of its own. So his idea was that the true great Pian, how do you pronounce it? Pianist. 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 But she pronounced it in this French with just happiness, no? So I had this kind of penis problems. Okay. So, of course, it's clear what Schumann wanted to say that what the way he wanted to do it is a kind of a variations without a melody that. Uh, the two lines should be perceived as variations, implicitly referring to a melodic line, which should remain only for the eyes, which you don't 
here. So the point is uh, that uh, uh, to, again a truly great pianist must know how to play it so that somehow this absent but precisely the virtual absent point of reference is evoked. But then something more mysterious happens. My sources, it's always good to confess which is the source of your bluffing. So that's you no, know, it's a wonderful <coughs> book. I really appreciate him. Maybe he's the greatest musicologist to You know Charles Rosen, who did this classical style, and then he did maybe even better second volume, as it were, a Romantic Generation, where he covers Schubert, Schumann, Chopin, all those guys. Okay. He does this. First, you have the whole part segment written in this way. A melody here, a melody, the line of notes here, the line of notes here, with Augenmusik, a third line here. Then something strange happens. He repeats exactly the same notes, up and down, but here it's empty. And this is the true challenge to the piano player. This would be the Delesian pure repetition. Because nothing changes at the level of reality. By reality I simply mean the actual notes to be played. What changes is just the virtual background, the virtual echoing. <coughs> no? You should play, I don't know how this works, I listened to some recordings, I imagined that I heard the difference, but probably because I wanted to hear it. And, but, but you see the art, the art is you repeat exactly the same lines, but in such a way that what changes is not what you hear, but what you don't hear. You should place one so that this somehow, don't ask me how, resonates in it the other time that it doesn't resonate in it. This, I think, can be perfectly referred to as what Deleuze means by, uh, even a quote I have here, by uh, that uh, there are, significant differences in the virtual intensities expressed in our actual sensations. These differences do not correspond to actual recognizable differences. It is that, that the only change is the change of the, of the virtual relations and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, my point is that we can maybe apply even the same to ideology, maybe the true ideological revolution, much more difficult to achieve, is not to change, this is what I, I was talking, I don't know, yesterday, but it's not just the change in what you explicitly, in explicit or, but you know, like for example, as I was talking yesterday, if I say you shouldn't do this, it has this virtual background, do I mean you really should do this, do I blah, blah, blah. And uh, maybe a much more difficult revolution than to change the explicit rules is the revolution in this background. So that I'm saying the same thing, but the virtual resonance, what the less called virtuality behind, is a different one. Again, this is how, in this sense, uh, the radical change is this change where nothing happens in reality, in reality the same is repeated. But there you discover the radical, pure difference, which is no longer just a difference 
concrete difference that you can pick down, but somehow everything is different. Now let me give you another example, which I like even more, maybe you know it, it's such an evil example that I really love it. Uh, it really happened to me, that's why I repeat it all the time. Uh, it's from uh, my experience with Doctor of novel Billy Bathgate. Maybe you know the novel and the movie. Okay, let me tell you what happened to me. I first saw a movie, which I so-so didn't like too much, but my impression was, oh my God, you can see how much better the novel must have been and how they, you know, the, the, you know sometimes when you do a movie from a masterpiece and it's a bad movie, you can still see the traces of the great point of reference, literary, whatever, masterpiece, and say, oh my God, what a shame, couldn't they recapture, blah, blah. But then something mysterious happened to me. I said, okay, let's then read the novel. To cut a long story short, the novel was even worse. <laughs> so, something, this would be another way to mention the Deleuzean repetition. We have the real repetition. First, we have the novel, which, okay, let's agree for the sake of argument, you don't have to, that it's a bad novel, and incidentally, I don't have anything against Doktorov. I, some of his works I like tremendously, like his Rosenberg children's story, did you see it? The Book of Daniel, I think, and so on. No, no, it's a lesser known novel, so nothing against him. But this novel I don't like. In uh, the movie, I don't know, so it would be Dustin Hoffman, uh, Nicole Kidman, and so on, whatever. Okay. So, uh, we have a failed novel, not too good novel. We have a failed repetition, a movie. Both are, let's accept it for the sake of the argument, both are failures. But the repetition itself, retroactively, generates a purely virtual, spectral presence of the true novel as it should have been. And this is what Deleuze is saying. This is how I read a wonderful passage from Deleuze, the absolute Deleuze. Forget about all that anti-edible steep when I, uh, shit. When I take power, those books will be burned. You know, I'm really a totalitarian. When people tell me about the Nazis burning books, I say, of course, we should condemn this. But let's not, as they put it viciously, let's not throw out the baby with the dirty water. The principle of burning books was good. They just burned the wrong books. <laughs> I seriously think that the two absolute, the less books are, I think, difference and repetition and uh, the logic of sense. They are... Miracles for me. So, look what he writes here. I quote, he speaks about two presents or two series. While it may seem that the two presents are successive at a variable distance apart in the series of reals, in fact, in fact, they form rather two real series which coexist in relation to a virtual object of another kind one which constantly circulates and is displaced in them. Repetition is, not constituted, is constituted not from one present to another, but between the two coexistent series, 
that this presents form in function of the virtual object. So again, back to Billy Bathgate, the film does not repeat the novel on which it is based. It, it is rather that they both repeat the unrepeatable virtual X, the true novel whose specter is engendered by the passage from the actual novel to the actual to the actual film. And let's be more precise here. Uh, it's not that we should simply conceive the starting point, Doctorov's novel, as, as they put it, an open work, full of possibilities which can be deployed later, actualized in later versions. Or even worse, that we should conceive the original work as a pretext which can later be contextualized in different contexts giving a different meaning, and so on and so on. What is missing here is some retroactive movement, which, another quote that I repeat all the time, but I think this is, again, absolutely crucial to understand Hegel. Uh, 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 a movement described, again, I mention it in, in uh, some of my books, uh, what happened in this movement. It is something which was, as far as I know, first conceptualized by Henri Bergson in his Two Sources of Morality and Religion. Bergson describes the strange sensation he experienced when the First World War was declared on August 4, 1914. He wrote, in spite of my turmoil, and although a war, even a victorious one, appeared to me as a catastrophe, I experienced what William James spoke about, a feeling of admiration for the facility of the passage from the abstract to the concrete. Who would have thought that such a formidable event can emerge in reality with so little fuss? So what he is dealing with is the following, that when the war exploded, what happened? Before, everybody knew, or at, uh, in, at the level of abstract knowledge, everybody knew about it, expected it. You know how it looked. For the last 20, 30 years, all Europe was obsessed by the prospect of the war. But nonetheless, nobody believed in really can, it really can happen. This is why it was such a shock. It was a clear example of this I know very well, but nonetheless, I don't believe it can really happen. Now, what was such a surprise for Bergson was that, first, it was probable but impossible. This is how it was subjectively experienced. Then, when it happened, it suddenly became real and possible. That is to say, once it happened, it retroactively became totally acceptable, possible. And I, I think the subjective experience described here is quite, quite correct. I remember the same, for example, when I, the first weeks I have put were traumatic, when I did the military service. I uh, was there, and in advance I knew it would be terrifying, and I knew it would be horrible, but I somehow blocked it as a serious possibility. 
when I went to the army, it's not, the shock was not only that I was there, but how all of a sudden it was totally naturalized. Did it happen to you that I, it was on the contrary, already after a week or two that the life in the normal, non-military society became a kind of a vague memory and so on. So, uh, what happens here? That's the beautiful formula by Bergson, is that uh, there is the logic we have here is not the standard linear logic of a possibility of we have a situation A here which has certain possibilities this can happen, that can happen and so on. Then one of these possibilities is realized and so on and so on. No, is that something that we consider here, of course, not logically, but in the symbolic space, impossible, happens, and when it happens, it retroactively becomes possible. In the sense that, oh my God, how couldn't we see it? It's quite normal. Uh, 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 this would be, incidentally, the best definition you can imagine of what Jacques Lacan means an act. You do something which appears impossible, but it retroactively, as it were, creates its own conditions of possibility. I will give, even give you, so that you will not uh, 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 accuse me again of trying to do some communist propaganda or what, a very uh, common <coughs> example. You remember the Cold War, China so-so, sorry, Russia so-so in Nixon era, but Mao's China, total madness, they want world war. Then Nixon's visit to China. How? When it happened, it immediately looked normal. Of course, no break, of course, it's rational politics, and so on, and so on, and so on. So, uh, here is another beautiful quote from Bergson, where he accounts for this mechanism. He says, I never pretended that one can insert reality into the past and thus work backwards in time. However, one can, without any doubt, insert there the possible, or rather, at every moment, the possible inserts itself there. Insofar as unpredictable and new reality creates itself, its image reflects itself behind itself in the indefinite past. This new reality finds itself all the time having been possible. But it is only at the precise moment of its actual emergence that it begins to always already have been. That's the wonderful formulation. And this is why I say that its possibility, which does not precede its reality, will have preceded it once this reality emerges. You know, it's like, it's like this, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, sorry, immediately, just to finish the life, I'm senile old, just to finish. It's like, you know, when you are in love, you are in love and then somehow all of a sudden it appears as if all your previous life is structured as if it was waiting for this moment. Please. Where did you quote from? Ah, good idea. It, the quote, uh, the quote is... Uh, was it here or there? I will give you the precise quote. Uh, uh, four? Yeah. I quote from, uh, I quote from, from 
I want it to be precise from oeuvre, blah, blah, blah. But basically, from his text, it should be translated. It was one of his big texts, Two Sources of Morality and Religion. And if I know it correctly, it's not a mega thick book, so it should be easy to... All I know is that my official quote is from oeuvre. Works, you know, this Pleiad crazy edition in one volume, page 1110 and 11. But that's not realistic. Look into look into that one, uh, uh, but, but uh, to admit, but where I really quote from, I don't bluff with you, I uh, tell you openly, is, as always intellectuals do it, I'm really quoting from that wonderful, I forgot which one, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, whom I mentioned to you yesterday, he's this uh, wonderful uh, uh, rational choice theorist, but with a great dialectical sense, for example, he has a, a wonderful theory of how you should confront a catastrophe. That uh, it doesn't work if you say, okay, there is still a possibility. You say, you must accept catastrophe as inevitable and then change the very past so that, you know, like you must work in this, uh, in this way. So what, I'm, so what has this to do with, ah, now we go to the crucial point, what has this to do with Hegel? I claim that uh, 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 what the Hegelian temporality, when Hegel speaks about rational totality and so on and so on, is uh, when he Hegel speaks about eternity, it's always done in this way. It's not, for, for example, you know, you have all these formulas in Hegel which may sound like this absolute metaphysical closure where the a temporal structure has priority over temporal development. Hegel does say, for example, uh, in development a thing becomes what it always already was. As if, you know, in previous... So, as if we have a closed circle of potentials, possibilities, and this effectively, Hegel may appear to be this kind of a totally closed structure. But I think the way we should read the Hegelian notion of totality is more in this Bergson way, and I will give you here, let's proceed a little bit fast so that uh, uh, we don't lose time. You must know, again, the conservatives that I like, there's another Deleuze's notion which is crucial here. It's the strange notion of what Deleuze calls a pure past, an absolute past, a kind of a atemporal, eternal texture, where, quote from Deleuze, uh, where all events, include, including those that have sunk without trace, are stored and remember as they're passing away, and so on and so on. So again, this idea that whatever goes on, just realizes what potentially is always already there in an atemporal structure. But is Hegel really saying this? I think Hegel is effectively saying something much closer to, I will not quote it to you, you must know it, a wonderful passage, I like conservatives again, from T.S. Eliot, you know that, traditional individual talent. You know, when he has this idea that every truly new work of art retroactively changes the past itself. Of course, he's not an idiot. Like Bergson, his point is not that the magic 
travel in the past. But that, for example, I don't know how to put it, after a certain new work of art, classical arts themselves are structured, perceived in a different way. The idea is here what in structuralism it was called the priority of synchrony over diachrony. In the sense that at every historical moment, we don't have just the present. The present is always also the entire past, the way it forms what Deleuze calls this virtual pure past. All the traces, the way they are structured. So again, this is how we should distinguish common changes and a true radical change. Common changes just explore possibilities within this structure of the past. A radical change restructures, in this sense, the past itself. How does this work? Again, uh, let me give you a wonderful quote from Borges. I don't always like Borges. He's sometimes too... What is this? Uh, uh, he's sometimes, how should I put it, uh, too, too smart for his own good or whatever in this paradox. But he, in his uh, uh, 